Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to this newest episode of Engage, the official Star Trek podcast. And it's brought to you by Movement Watches. Hey, Brian. Hey, Jordan. What time is it? I don't know. Let me look at my watch. <laughs> You know, a lot of klutzes our age, when you ask them what time it is, they got to dig into their pocket. They got to whip out their phone. Maybe they're sitting down. They're wearing blue jeans. Next thing you know, it's a whole operation getting your phone out. Takes two, by the time you find your phone, the time that it was, it no longer is. <laughs> so the, I'm going retro. And the way to find out what time it is is to wear a movement watch. The thing about movement watches is this. They look like a million bucks. They are sleek and stylish and uh, really fashion forward, but they uh, are rather inexpensive in the grand scheme of things. This was a company that was founded by two young gentlemen right out of college who were at their first jobs and they wanted to wear cool looking watches but couldn't afford them. So they said, screw this, we're going to start making our own watches. And they started Movement Watches. And the, the watches themselves, and you know they have them in, in, in men's and ladies' fashions, although what you choose to wear is entirely up to you, uh, but traditional men's and women's fashions, uh, they started around 95 bucks. And they look like a type of thing that in an apartment store would cost around 400 bucks. Um, so what I want you to do is level up. Stop looking at your phone to know what time it is. You want to go to mvmt.com slash engage. MVMT for movement. mvmt.com slash engage. That special URL gets you 15% off. It gets you free shipping. It gets you a free return, but you're not going to want to return it. You're going to want to keep it forever. Uh, mvmt.com slash engage. Uh, level up, change the game, and find out what time it is. But right now, Brian, it's time to listen to the latest episode of Engage, the official Star Trek podcast. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Its continuing mission to explore strange new worlds. And welcome back, everybody. Welcome back. Thank you for tuning in once again to Engage. The official Star Trek podcast. It is great to have you all here on uh, Engage. What number is Engage? 17. Engage. Yeah, there we go. Engage. It's great to have you all back. We have a very special guest today, someone um, that I met for the first time in Las Vegas last year. And uh, no, this year. It feels like last year. It does. <laughs> because it was before Discovery came on the air. Uh, and that is Ted Sullivan. Wait, let me beam him in. 
He's not here yet. Let me wait. He's on the communicator. Yes, let's beam him in. Whoa! Materializing before my eyes. And so cool. <laughs> oh my gosh. You know, one of the key factors that we've talked a lot about on Discovery is uh, that many of the sound effects, they're not 100% the same, but they're 98.7% the same. And the transporter one being being one of them has always been a nice touch. I sure, think. there's a lot of sounds too on the bridge and in the sick yeah. bay that that feel like what you want it to feel right. like. <laughs> exactly. But you know what happened last night? And I should preface: we are recording this episode of Engage the Official Star Trek Podcast on the Monday after Episode Eight, One Hundred Eight, as you call it in the biz. And One Hundred Eight had uh, the lengthy. Latin name, which means if you want peace, prepare for war. What is it in Latin again? You're asking me? Yeah, Six Semper Tyrannus is, or whatever yes. it was. This it, is, I, I, I did not do well in Catholic right. school. <laughs> you worked on the damn show. so you. Well, anyway, the, the episode eight, uh, we just saw it last night, uh, but we are uh, holding on. We're doing, we're banking this episode till the um, hiatus, uh, mid-season hiatus. So, uh, But just to give you a sense... Uh, I'm talking to Ted after knowing what happened in episode eight, but not knowing what happened in episode nine. And of course, Ted does know what happened in episode nine, so we could tie him down and force it out of him. But uh, I you- can also tell you episode nine is crazy good. <laughs> it's I, I honestly I said this last night on After Track and I believe it. I think it is on the same shelf as uh, Balance of Terror. Whoa. Yeah. It's uh, Erica Lippolt and Bowie Kim wrote one of the best episodes, in my opinion, of Trek ever. Wow. Yeah. Okay, and that's episode nine. And episode nine, I would imagine, picks up right where episode eight leaves off. You would imagine that, yeah. Oh, snap. <laughs> Brian, you're making a face. Is there a, a bomb or something? Um. Yeah, I think I'm going to adjust your mic, actually, but... um. Do it. Come and adjust. We're all about, we're all about letting it all hang out here on this show. <laughs> yeah. Usually things sound good. I don't... You know what? Because, um... How we doing now? That sounds better. Yeah. All right. Good. Ted Sullivan has a very unique position in Star Trek Discovery. Your official title, at least in the opening credits, is co-executive producer. Correct. Not co-producer. No. Not executive producer. Right. co It was like a Voltron of the two. The co-executive <laughs> producer. Uh, yeah. You're, it's a ladder of... I mean, you you start off as a staff writer, and yeah. then you go executive story editor, and you kind of work up through co-producer. Okay. And um, from my understanding, uh, just from following you on social media, which if, if you're a disgusting nerd like we are, Ted is Carter Hall at uh, on Twitter in the spelled as a Thanagarian. That's K A T E R H O L. And we should talk a little about DC Comics before we're done. Um, but uh, it means that you are in the writer's room in Los Angeles. And you were also involved in the physical production in Toronto from time to time because I've seen pictures of you on the set. Yes. And post production is done in Toronto also, or no, in LA. In LA, and it's at it's at our production offices. Right, right. And the, the production offices and the writing room is it both in, in the, the same, same building in pa- the Paramount lot? Or uh, no, across the street. Uh, it's uh, at Raleigh. It's called Raleigh. Yeah, like the capital of North Carolina. Correct. Okay, so but it's near Paramount, so you can throw rocks at the at the gate. We see them out the window. <laughs> Let me. Wouldn't it make a lot more sense to shoot it in L.A.? Why you got to fly all the way to Toronto to do the production part? Well, that's a whole business side, right? Of it because if you, there's a lot of productions that are done in Toronto, sure. and the reason why are there are tax breaks for going there, 
and that there are also things like lumber is 40 cents cheaper oh so that's a i never knew the lumber factoid but think if you think about a production you think about how expensive this production is every penny yeah or every canadian dollar you stretch um to go as far as you can because we need to have as much of the money end up on the screen. Right, right. So I, I have always heard about taxes being less expensive there, which is weird because Canada has a lot of social programs that America does not. But they but, they make incentives to bring work right, up right, there. Right, okay. And also you have a lot of productions, film productions go to London to shoot, which mm-hmm. is crazy to me because London's very expensive. Right. What's yeah. going on with that? I, that's uh, that's a film production. I don't know anything about it. All right, good. It. Yeah, that's, not a, that's another question. So, Ted, let's talk a little bit about your walk to how you became, uh, you ended up where you are today, um, which is uh, before you were working uh, in the film and television biz, you were a Star Trek fan so from a very young age. I think we talked about this in Las Vegas, but it's a little bit of a blur. Tell me again your Star Trek origin story. Where, where, how old were you? What were you doing? What was the specific episode where you're like, yeah, Star Trek, it's a thing. I like it. I also like, uh, you know, playing with my Hot Wheels. But then something clicked in you when you said, oh, my God, Star Trek is a, is a thing. When I was a young boy growing up in Connecticut, uh, I my grandfather used to take me to a place called Child World, and you could buy. He would say, "You can buy one present, right, uh, for yourself." And I they had the Mego Star Trek, uh, the the bridge. Oh, and yeah, yeah. That had the transporter that spun around, and I didn't yeah. know what it was, but it looked like a spaceship, and I thought it was cool. Yeah. And I said I wanted that, and I just used it as a as just a set to play around, right. With. And you didn't realize that it was a branded. I didn't know really what Star Trek was. <laughs> right. And then when I was eight, this was probably a year later, I was flipping through TV. It was raining, and I was at my grandparents' house, and I came across, I think it was two in the afternoon, City on the Edge Forever. And I recognized the bridge. Oh, you're like, hey, I have that toy. I have, that, I have yeah. that toy, and uh, it was... A very confusing episode for me because it was there was a spaceship and there were spacemen, but then there was also Nazis. <laughs> you know, like like I you saw clips of that and and was it looked like pictures from when my grandparents had grown up, and and then the the handsome guy didn't save the pretty woman sure, at the end, yeah. but that was the right thing to do. And yeah, in a way, that's not. I, when you first said City of the Edge of Forever, I'm like, wow, go for the gold. You know, start in with the best. Maybe not the best first episode because it's such an outlier. It is an outlier, but it had a profound emotional impact on me. Wow. Because okay. I, uh, Bowie Kim on, on, on our show, she always makes fun of me because I love sad movies and s- stories that end in tragedy. Mm. And I, clearly I did at eight because I've, I immediately said, I really like this show. I'm confused by it, but I liked it. And it was in, in the New York channels. It was on all the time. Sure. So yeah. I just started binge watching it whenever I could. And then I I became obsessed with it. And by the time that we moved, I moved to Europe uh, as a kid and I was 10, I was reading the novels and we didn't have a TV. So I just would read Star Trek books. No joke. Really? Yes. Wow. And so then coming back to America was around the time of Star Trek Three, and okay, yeah, that and I had just seen Wrath of Khan on on VHS, 
Star Trek Three was my first one that I saw in the theater. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. And I was blown away by it. I, to this day, still I still love that movie because to me it is it is pure TOS. Yeah. It is both awesome and terrible. It is both beautiful <laughs> and cheap. Like yeah. there are the worst sets ever, but the best performances. I think that's William Shatner's best performance by far in anything he's ever done. The scene where he falls back off the captain's chair. chair is amazing. Klingon bastard, you yeah, my son. It's so good. And, and all the other actors in it are great acting off of him. And yeah. it's, it's a it's a beautiful scene. And then there's also a beautiful comedy, like when Bones, when they're coming up to the door, you're just gonna walk through them? Sure, yeah, the scene in the bar with the sort of proto-Ferengi yeah, and the whole thing all, is great. All yeah. that stuff is great. Um, and so off of that, my brother and I were obsessed with it, and we wrote our own version of Star Trek Four, oh. which I think I mentioned in, right. in Vegas. Yeah. And that was the first feature script I'd ever written. So I learned how to write because of Star Trek. Did you use the proper formatting? Uh, no, no, no. In fact, we wrote it like a play because we didn't right. know what sure. scripts looked like. So, yeah. uh, as, And then the first pilot I ever wrote was uh, about Sulu. Um, and it was a pilot of... Um, he thought he was going to get the command of Excelsior, mm. and then he got command of a smaller ship called the Pegasus, and which is, you know, I know there was a Pegasus right, later, right, right, but... Right. Non-canonical Pegasus. Non exactly. <laughs> and he ends up being um, frustrated, but then he kind of loves this little yeah. ship that could. Wow. So I learned how to write both uh, my first script and then my first pilot because of Star Trek. Wow, and, and lucky for you, decades later, that's what you're doing now. Yeah. So. Uh, and then yeah. I then then it was off to film school. Yeah, uh, I went to USC film. Oh, nice. Okay. Uh, well, <laughs> if, if I could go back in time, and yeah. what I tell people, it's better to just work, because I think I mean unless you're going for production, like I went to the filmic writing program, right? And the writing right. program is like twenty two people. It's um, four years. They choose all your classes for you. It, it wasn't a real college experience. It was just it was a this work program, yeah, but it was a work program that didn't really prepare you for. I have a similar experience, my would you, So you would recommend young people go to just a regular college, and yes. then if they want to write, write. Yeah, because you you can always write. Yeah, but what you need to do is be exposed to life. You need to be. It's better to take history classes and science classes, and yeah, th those are the things that fill you out as a human being as an adult yeah i do find that you know there are a lot of young film critics that i know who all they do is watch movies and so they can recognize and edit and say oh yes antonioni did the same thing but when it comes to writing a good review they don't know what the hell they're talking about because they've never left their apartments when so. i got hired by Waylon green to work on law and order criminal intent uh to be that was my first kind of prime time writing job i was Later in life, I had done a whole other kind of. You were life. in the Merchant Marines. <laughs> well, <laughs> everything but that. Okay, fair enough. But I had lived. I was thirty six at that point, and I had been turned down a lot for being of a certain age. And sure. Waylon said, "I only hire people when they're thirty five and above because that's when they start getting inter interesting and they had lived a life." Wow. Okay. Um, so I, 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 from film school, then became a soap opera writer. And which, which soap were you writing? Uh, Guiding Light, One Life to Live, oh, As the World Turns. My grandmother loved Guiding Light. I know. Every grandmother yeah. loved me. Specifically Guiding Light. Yeah. That was her one. That was uh, her one. It was, um, it was a 
brutal, hard, uh, Roger Corman-esque yes. training yeah. because at the end of my first year, I was 26, I think, and at the end of my first year, I had written 54 hours of television. <laughs> it's unheard of these days. Right. You know? Well, well, like, other than people who still work in soap opera, which right. there are some. There are still some. But yeah. it was um, five days, you know, we did shot five days a week. We had six writers in the room. We had to write five or six episodes a week. Wow. And and almost no rehearsal, like a blocking rehearsal. Well, we no. shot an entire episode in one day. It's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. It's like more, it, it the, the soaps, which at these days don't have as much cultural capital right. but for a while it was a big deal to a certain demographic and people forget and people were watching 23 23 million people would watch a single episode yeah it's amazing and it would be it was done faster than an indie film faster than a black box off off broadway play because there was no rehearsal and they would just blaze through it and it would come off it would i mean it wasn't always the best but it but it looked professional the, the actors got their lines right i mean it was amazing well and that that kind of acting uh, jonathan frakes and i were talking about that because his wife is obviously a big soap opera star mm. and he said it's the hardest acting in tv <laughs> and i said absolutely yeah. it's she would get he said she would get like 35 pages of dialogue to memorize the night before amazing yeah. and for me as a writer it taught me how to write quickly, to write effectively, to write to act breaks, um, to try to make a lot out of something when you don't have a lot um, and not rely on spectacle or whatever. You you just had to focus on what are these two characters going to be talking about in a room? Yeah. So you were a young man working for the soaps. Mm -hmm. I mean, you'd pretty much write out of school and this was your first gig. And, you know, young people tend to, you know, they, they want to they really make an impact. And I imagine that you were proud of the work you were doing, but there had to been some times when you were writing this stuff going like, oh my God, how do I make this good? I mean, the, the story- It was only that. <laughs> I, I, honestly, I, to be 100% honest, I was a miserable, terrible person back then. Oh, I, I, really, I really was. I was, I was arrogant and I was uh, self-important mm. and I thought this is all beneath me. I used to be embarrassed of it and I was only doing it for the money right. and then I would- um, act out and I what ultimately happened is after writing on three shows and having this kind of big ego yeah I crashed and burned and I uh, and I actually left the industry and I quit for five years and I moved back to the Bay Area and I um, did work at SRI in Stanford doing medical research uh, HIV studies um, drug and alcohol treatment. Oh, wow. And was a part of uh, a different process and being part of a team and learning how to do research and learning how to write papers and do presentations and working with people who were proud of their work. Yeah, yeah. And it changed my life. Well, that must have been interesting when you came to start doing medical research where you're like, who's this Guiding Light guy. I mean, yeah. was it? Everyone was like, what is this guy doing here? <laughs> they, they thought I was the weirdest, strangest, kind yeah. of sullen person. But they, being there, it's where I met my wife. Um, you know, we met basically over a, an fMRI scanner and uh, doing a longitudinal study of uh, normal aging with World War II vets. And I just met a whole group of different people who had pride and respect for their work and that it was science, so you actually had to get things correct. 
And when I came back to the industry, it made me a way, way better writer and producer and person. Huh, that's uh, really interesting. And did, did you then kind of regret your attitude on the soaps a little bit? Or was it hundred percent. Yeah. I'm ashamed of what I, who I was in my twenties. Yeah. It was, it, it, I really had to lose everything, which I did. I just, I lost everything. And I went, and, but it allowed me to kind of start over again, do a hard reboot for my yeah. life. Yeah. And then when I came back after five years and I came back to the industry, I learned, I, I said, I'm going to start at the bottom. And so I, I had been someone who had been writing soap operas, making a lot of money, got nominated for an Emmy. And I, then I was, I was uh, a PA and then I taught myself editing, built my own editing system so oh, I could wow. learn how to be, do Avid. And then I became an editor and then a director and then a line producer. So I wanted to learn the industry inside and out so that the next time when I had another shot, I would know, like, well, no, I know, I've been a gaffer, I know how long that takes. Yeah, so. yeah, well, that's really great, because now, you know, you're in a position where you are writing, but also involved in the physical production, so you know what can be done in camera, you know how, right. how difficult it is to, when a schedule is made, you go like, that's not gonna happen, but sure. this could happen, yeah. you know, there you have that. that uh, or you look at a schedule and say, boy, you, you booked a lot of time <laughs> for that, and I don't think we need that much time. Like, right. what, why are we padding this? But there's also, you, you learn that everyone in the crew is a key component of the show. <laughs> yeah. And really important in making it come alive. And so I don't like, writers and producers that just sit in Video Village and just talk to the director and the DP and a couple of the act. Like, I like to move through the set and I, I like to talk to the grips and talk to um, the sound department and just everyone because they all have a different perspective and they all have an idea that will help make the show better Yeah, or run smoother or you learn that, oh, that's a problem? I'm glad you told me that, and we can fix it, as opposed to letting something fester. Right, right, right. Because even things that are on, uh, that may not be something that ends up on screen, if it's an issue, it'll metastasize. Absolutely. And, and then it becomes a problem that affects key personnel, and then it will affect what's on the screen. You or know? you don't realize that this department is feuding with this department. Right, yeah. So if you can create a detente or some type of, you know, peace accord. Right. The Organians. Right. Have so to if you can get the Pavins. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's uh, that's funny. All right, cool. So um, I, I guess the other question I have is, um, you hear a lot about writers' rooms. It's like a phrase, and like you know, writing itself. There's like different p people who are not uh, involved in. Specifically, television production. You think about oh, right. You, you think of Tolstoy off in a room agonizing over over a, a book he's writing, and then you think of well, writers' rooms, and you think of like the Dick Van Dyke Show, where they're sitting around a table throwing jokes at each other. And then, uh, so every show is different, I would imagine. I'm curious to know about, um, and I know if I'm curious, and other people are, sort of the um, uh, what's what's the expression called? The uh, breakdown of responsibilities, but there's a there's a, a specific term for that, but I don't remember what it is. Of you know, you watch a show like episode eight last night. It said written by Kirsten Beyer, who was a friend of this podcast and we love. Um, but we know that there's a writers' room where there's a lot of people, yourself included, that are involved. So how does that work exactly? Um, especially when you have a show like this, which is 
an overarching season where there are a lot of interlocking themes and episode eight picks up where episode seven left off to a degree, but episode nine picks off really where episode eight leaves off. Um, is, is the assigning of credits a little bit more like, well, that person didn't get their credit yet and they were very involved in this one or? No, it, I, Aaron and Herberts and Gretchen Berg are, are showrunners and they are writers at heart. So uh, they, and they really want to respect the craft of writing and they highly, highly encourage each writer to take ownership of their episode. Uh, when in their episode is assigned, when, when Kirsten was assigned 108, we didn't know what that episode was going to be. We just knew that was her episode. So then you start seeing when you're at episode five and six, oh, wait, I think we probably, you start getting an idea of where right. what needs so to in, happen So in a there. way, it's like a baseball lineup. Yeah. You're, you're batting cleanup. You're, you're eight. Yeah. You're, you're batting eight. And what you better hope seven tees you up nice. Yes. And <laughs> it, it, Which one was the one that you, that you had a, a writing credit, an official? It was six. Uh, that was uh, Lethe with that Joe Minoski and I did. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, that was one of my favorites. Yeah. Well, they, you know they're all tied at first place, but that one. Well, was, yeah, uh, it was. was uh, uh, um, the room functions differently than any other room I've ever been in. Like when I was at Law and Order, Waylon Green doesn't believe in a room. He thinks a room is a waste of time. So we had all just separate offices, and he would just go from office to office and just. But you can do that on a on a show like that because it's purely episodic. Yes. They can move yeah. those episodes around, and they did in any order. Um, working with Jason Kadams on Pure Genius, it was a room where it was 10 in the morning, 5 in the afternoon, straight through, just sitting in a circle, discussing story, plot, theme, and character. And is somebody typing while mm -hmm. this is happening? Do yeah. you have like an assigned typist? We or do. is it one of, what, you're all typing. You all get your laptops open. And no. All... Oh, there's a, there's a, a, a writer's assistant. We had a great right. writer's assistant, Tyler Danucci, who is. The reason uh, Tyler, Ash Tyler is named after him. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> um, and he he's actually the best um, uh, note taker uh, that I've ever. He's a writer himself, uh, and he, I, I was stunned by his notes. His notes are spectacular. And notes are really the 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 lifeblood for the room. If the notes are good, you can go through them and find because a lot of ideas are being thrown. Right, around. people are shouting yes. and also telling jokes. There's always a lot of levity. I would imagine. Or not so much. Maybe sure. <laughs> Maybe there it's isn't a, pretty a lot of It's a pretty, a pretty intense show. I mean, we we have a very special room. I, I look around the room and and feel very lucky at who is in that room with us. Mm -hmm. And I think writer's rooms, I often say writer's rooms are like a submarine duty. You you go in silent running for nine months. Yeah. And if you don't get along with the people in that room, there's going to be a mutiny. And I've been in rooms like that. Oh, I see. So we have a very supportive room where everyone works just as hard for someone else's episode as they do on their own right it was even, though, even though their name is not i mean i hate to be so territorial about this but i do find this fascinating even though their name is not in the credits they are helping that person giving them the best ideas they they can playing devil's advocate doing all these all these coming uh, in early staying late yeah writing scenes or helping out on stuff in order to just help get the ball down right. the field but then it does come to and correct me if i'm wrong at some point the person who is assigned the, the day is done then that person goes home and stays up till 4 a.m yes. typing yeah so well, because what 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 it is is when we we're in the room yeah there we break it together so we have whiteboards all around the room and act breaks and all that type of thing move cards around and we are 
poking it and pushing it and arguing and getting sometimes in heated discussions, uh, I often get angry like wait we can't do that because of one line that was said in episode 403 of enterprise okay okay well we'll move on right, right, right. um so the room breaks it together because we have a really talented supportive group of people when it's when aaron and gretchen come in and we pitch the episode to them and they walk it through and then they they have their own notes and then they say great go off and Right, and so Kirsten went off and wrote, but she also was the one who came in and said, I think there should be a planet, I think it should be sentient, I think right. that it should, we should be dealing with the idea of peace in the midst of all this war and death. Right. So right. she had these themes she wanted to play like, around with. I get eight, and he, she's kind of the alpha and omega. I, you, know, you sign me eight, I think eight should be X, Aaron and Gretchen say yes, and then it all starts fleshing out. And then she's got an outline from yes. the room, and then she goes home and stays up till four in the morning and, and basically yes. writes this. When Joe and I did episode six, Lethe, when we did that episode, we both wanted to write about complicated relationships with our parents, which we both had. So it was uh, an, a, a chance for us to exercise those demons or those issues, but also fit into the context of Star Trek. So we used Sarek and Burnham. Yeah. And Amanda as a vehicle for talking about some themes we wanted to talk about that also happened to translate well into Star Trek. Right, right, right. So, so, and luckily, you know, the show had begun with like, oh, we know that Burnham is uh, a human raised on Vulcan and Sarek is her father. We haven't really talked about that in a while. Well, guess what? Perfect timing. Right. You wanted to do an episode about. Uh, parental issues it, it locks in nicely and also you you inherently know certain things like we knew but if we don't deal with some of this by episode six it's going to be too far away from episode right. one and two where right. that where we talked about that stuff yeah so uh your gut your writer gut kind of says i think we need to tell this story right now yeah yeah it's different i mean it's a lot it's like it's 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 a it's not a formula you know no. it's there's a lot a lot of this uh I think that, that goes into it. I think that's also the issue that some hardcore fans that have had difficulty with the show is that it it is breaking the mold for what Star Trek usually does. So we don't have fully realized characters yet. Right. Kirk isn't Kirk. Riker isn't Riker in this right. version. You know, they, they become they become the characters. Right. Right. Well, you know, it's funny. That's something that that uh, Brian and I have talked a lot about as we've been doing recaps, and. Um, Every other Star Trek has had the Spock character, you know, the outsider looking in. There was Spock, there was Data, there was Seven of Nine, there was Odo. They're always sort of like the that character. And uh, in this, you're like, oh, well, Saru is that character. And I'm like, well, no, actually, is it is it Burnham? Well, no, it's not sort of. It sort of is. But, you know, it's not a one-to-one -one alignment. And... From my point of view, that's like, great, you know, because we've done that five times. You know, why not try? It doesn't have to be a, a carbon copy every time. But there are some people, the very, very uh, small minority of individuals who watch the show and don't like it, but tend to be vocal, uh, can't uh, get their heads around that. So it's... Uh, they want what they think they want. Right. <laughs> <laughs> They've been imagining a show right. for 12 years, and this isn't that show. But yeah. to me, that's what's exciting about it. Yeah. If you just gave people exactly what they'd been expecting yeah 
I don't know what the lasting power of that show would be. Well, I mean, it's funny you should bring that up because le- the episode that I watched last night, le- uh, episode eight, the Latin one, Kirsten Byers episode, where Saru goes on the planet, and because I have been um, framed by uh, by seven hundred plus episodes of Star Trek, I'm like, oh, these Pauvi, pa- what are they called? The Pavins. The Pavins. I just saw it last night, so I don't have a memory. I don't have the lore memorize it. The Pavins have clearly uh, possessed Saru, and when he has that dream freak out, and we see blue light entering his pineal gland, it's like this is like uh, Spock in, in this side of paradise where the spores attack him. And I'm know, in love, Jim. Right, and at the end of this episode, clearly Saru is going to stand up and go. Argh! And then the blue light is going to leave him and he's going to go, I'm free. I'm sorry I yelled at you. Well, that wasn't really me. But that never happened. In fact, the opposite. That happened. was the switcheroo. And that blew my mind. I'm like, this is this is a clear example of this. Producers and writers of this show have seen as much Star Trek as I have. And they want to take something that, that, that's been done before and turn it on its head. And I found that to be incredibly liberating and exciting. And I know uh, that there are probably some people that are going to lose their mind over that. Well, I, I think that's what Kirsten did so amazing in this. And she always said, I want to keep turning things on their head. Yeah. Uh, so that we think the Pavins are, are are maybe evil or sinister. But no, they, they, they just want love and happiness <laughs> and peace. And they <laughs> right, think right. they're doing the right thing. Maybe they are. Maybe they aren't. We'll find out. But... It's a really clever, uh, intelligent choice that she, she, every one of the choices she made in this story, I think, um, are very Star Trek, but also new Star Trek. Yeah, yeah. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This is Engage, Engage. the official Star Trek podcast. Energize. Some of the critics. I mean, do you uh, do you, do you read reviews? When of course, you do oh. of course. I <laughs> I go down a rabbit hole some nights. Uh, Bowie, Bowie Kim does the same thing, and Don't we do it. and we both will. T- oh, I, and and then we'll sometimes say, "Stop watching that thing," or "Stop reading that thing," yeah. because it can yeah it can get dark, it can get frustrating, and it can also make you go. Um, Boy, you don't know how TV is made. Well, that's just the thing. I mean that that is. That's another thing. Uh, the thing that, that I was going to bring up is it, you got to do a little recon on who's critiquing you because there are, with Star Trek and with other genre things that people love so much, there's a sense of ownership and entitlement. It happens with comic book movies, DC, Marvel, uh, you know, anything else that Transformers, any of the any of the IP that we loved as a kid. There are some critics who, who who just don't like it, and that's fine. You know, not everybody likes everything. But there are some people with weird agendas. And there are some people, uh, for example, I'm very active on Twitter, and I know that there were some people, because I was following them, that for 18 months were prepared to hate this show. Mm-hmm. They just hated it. And they were, just, they were hating it for misunderstanding corporate stuff, like 
stuff between Paramount and CBS and just like, which, yeah, who gives a shit about the corporate stuff? But, you know, there's and then just like convinced that anybody who's working on this show doesn't know Star Trek. Like you, you look at the look at the people involved. And then if you have Kirsten Beyer on your right. staff. There are people that know about Star well, Trek. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And then, so there was one individual who I won't mention who was just like ready, gears up to hate this and was saying, I'm never going to watch it and ref- said, I'm not watching it. I'm not paying for all access. I'm never going to watch it, but still mocks it week to week based on like animated GIFs that right. fly around and say, well, this is so terrible and hasn't even watched it. I have since stopped following this person because it's just going to give me an ulcer. But unfortunately, some people that have a soupçon of that attitude are writing about this show on news outlets that have a, a pedigree because oh that's our geek writer and right. we we don't know what the hell they're talking about they could be talking about legion or shield or you know so it's another one of these geek shows clear this writer knows it and uh, we wash our hands of it and and they don't and that's got to drive you a little bit bananas but here's the thing the only thing that drives me bananas is when people review not the show we're doing, but the show that they wish we did. Ah, okay. So after a while, I go like, well, that's not the show we're doing. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I will say this. I've been super, super impressed by some writing and some critiques that are both um, constructive criticisms criticism sometimes, but also uh, really thoughtful criticism. And yeah. I've read it, and there have been certain things that I did not want to put in episode six, the moment where um, Burnham shakes Tyler's hand again at the end. It was something that I was like, I don't know if this is going to work. And Aaron and Gretchen said, no, I think this is going to work. And it did. But reading the reviews of it, people said, well, now she's reintroducing herself because she's seen life through new eyes. She's She's realizing that I wasn't the right, the, I, I wasn't, my identity was not fully formed yeah, before. Yeah, yeah. So thematically, it's this beautiful moment. And I went, wow, I didn't even really pick up on that. And I wrote those words with <laughs> Joe. But you, so when I get educated by some uh, criticism or reviews, that's really special, which is why I find myself still going down the rabbit hole right, sometimes right. because I get something positive out of it too. Yeah. I mean, some good critics will have the luxury of not seeing it built from the ground up and can only only confront it when it's all polished and all and all done and can find things in it that maybe you didn't even realize was there. And some know? things we've done wrong. That's the other thing. Yeah. It's like some things we're a first season show. I personally think we're the best first season of a Star Trek series ever. And uh I would put you in a tie sure with okay. the original series sure yeah i mean that was the show that really came out guns blazing but you're right season one but of, he, of but, every other one is, is kind of a but mess. even yeah. season one of tos has some clunkers and has some things where you're like get out right <laughs> you're not allowed on this podcast no you're right every 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 season of everything has clunkers and i don't it, think but. we have a clunker of an episode no we might have moments where we i any one of us might have said, oh, I wish we didn't do that, or that was a battle we lost. Or, yeah. But there's so many reasons why things happen. Yeah. And so many notes and people's opinions from, or, oh, that set didn't work out, or that makeup effect didn't work out. So it's just, there's a million things. That right, right. Nothing. Well, it's never been so thought through ahead of time. I mean, if you read um, uh, the, those giant 
unauthorized books, These Are the Voyages, yeah. which our friend John Van Sitters says to take that all with a grain of salt right. because those books, uh, according to him and others, have do have fact errors in them. Nevertheless, there's 700-page books on each, epi- on each season, and in the book on season one, uh, just by looking at the notes between Roddenberry and Bob Justman and everybody else, they were midway through and they were still figuring this stuff sure. out. You know, I mean, they, it was because a different it's a world TV show. <laughs> I mean, that's the other right. people. It is not a religion. It was we, <laughs> when people say, well, how, how come we never heard about Burnham in any of the other episodes? Because right. we didn't make the show yet. <laughs> because well, this isn't a documentary. <laughs> that's one of my favorite things when people find out that I'm a big Star Trek guy and that I host this podcast they're like they still and this is a 20 year old 30 year old argument practically now um why the Klingons look different in the old show than they did in the movies and then you can talk about the augmentation virus from Enterprise and and bore them to tears but you could say you idiot because they didn't have the makeup back then. It right. was made in the sick. What do you, you want? You ask a dumb question, going to give you a dumb answer. The very first moment that Gene Roddenberry had the time, the money, and the resources <laughs> to change everything, he changed everything. He changed the Klingons. He changed the uniforms. He yeah. changed the communicators. Yeah. He changed the bridge. He changed everything. Yep. yep because yep. he said, "This is what I want it to look like." Yeah. Because it's a TV show and then he was making a movie. Yeah. We're making a different type of TV show. It's it's a streaming show. Yeah. It's for a global audience. And I think that's also important. We're trying to get people who have never thought about watching Star Trek before to watch Star Trek but still keep alive the themes and the the pa- the passion for the 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 source material. Yeah. But we want people like putting Michelle Yeoh in as the captain was a very important and, and smart choice because one, it's a female captain. Great. Yeah. There's a, I got so much feedback from from fans in America and in Asia who were like, I'm finally seeing myself, yeah. hearing myself with Michelle's accent, and I'm hearing my mother's voice. I'm hearing my voice. I've never felt that before. The sense of pride yeah. and ownership. That's great. So I don't understand why anyone would have any hate for us trying to open the door wider and say, all you people that had to squint to try to find yourself in Star Trek, yeah, come in. We're going to play here. Yeah, yeah. And we want you here. Yeah. It, you know, for years, Ohura was the character in Star Trek, and she sat in a chair and answered a phone. She was, <laughs> she was very visible, but she had very few moments where she... And very few character, and and yeah. it's not like you had an Ohura figure, and you're like, ah, here's my action scene with Ohura. Yeah. Like, but you can with Georgiou, and you can with Michael Burnham, yeah. and you can with Stamets, and and that's, yeah. I think, a really important part of what Star Trek really is. Yeah. Hey, I mean, don't I, leave Tilly out either. Oh no, and <laughs> and that's the other thing is like we, I've said this before. I said it with you on at in Las Vegas. Star Trek was never about sets and special effects and props and costumes to me. That's the easy thing for people to get obsessed with. Yeah. But it's always been about the theme and the metaphor for today and what is the purpose of telling this story. We're t- we've been at war for 16 years as a planet. That changes us fundamentally as a species. Yeah. We're telling a story that talks about that. And that's what Star Trek's supposed to do. Yeah. In my opinion. Um, I have spoken to a lot of people who are haven't watched yet, and because they plan 
to uh, binge it. Binge it. Yeah. And part of that is um, due to CBS decision to to do it weekly on a pay service, which has its pros and its cons. So there are some people who are thinking, ah, if I'm going to spend the X amount of dollars, I'm going to do it all at the end and watch it all at once. What do you think people who binge are going to, are they going to, how, what, what What do you think about people? Are they going to lose something out by not having time? To I think so, personally. Or, and yeah. I, I, there's a couple of things that I have to say about that. One, people sometimes attack me online and say, oh, the behind paywall. No, I say, well, you know, Game of Thrones is behind a paywall. <laughs> right. And it comes out once a week. Sure. Yeah. And the reason why is because Game of Thrones is really expensive. Yeah. Uh, so if you, our show is really expensive. Yeah. So if you're, if you're not willing to pay a cup of coffee, the equivalent of a cup of coffee or two cups of coffee yeah. a month to watch a show that is unlike any show that is on the air right now or has ever existed, yeah, we could do it for a lot less, but it would be it would a look chintzy. It would yeah. be a cheap network show. Yeah. We're not doing that. We're doing a feature film every week. Yeah. So that's one thing. And the other thing is, you know, I was talking to Jason Isaacs about this and he goes, you know, you do something like the OA and they binge it and four days later no one's talking about it anymore. That that is often true. Or you kind of forget it. Right. Like it's just you know, it doesn't linger. Stranger Things two came out, right? On yeah. on Halloween. Everyone was talking about it for like three days and yeah. then now we've moved on. Yeah. And it's gone. I, um, yeah. I mean, some things do do stay around longer and people discover them. But in terms of the conversation, it doesn't. But that's it, it my has, point. Yeah. It's, it's, and I, I think Star Trek is a different type of show. It's a show that isn't supposed to be binged. It's supposed to be something that you sit with and you talk about and you go online and you discuss it and all that yeah. type of thing. Because each episode has a very clear theme that we're dealing with. A lot of streaming shows that people binge, I don't think do that. I think they just feel like chapters in a 15 or 10 hour story. Yeah. And you know what? I, whenever, there are very few things that I've attempted to binge that I've finished. Because mm. who has the time? Like, you know, it would, you know, and then by the time you want to get back to it, you're like, oh, but there's this new thing right. now. You know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not anti, I guess I am anti binge. My wife does a lot of binging sometimes. So I'll be away for a day and I'll come back and she's like, oh, I, I watched the entire season of Kimmy Schmidt while you were gone. And I'm like, oh, I kind of wanted to watch that. But I, yeah, like, I was a big fan of um, Handmaid Tale and I yeah. did not want to binge it. Like it was all up and then when I finally got around to watching it and I was yeah. like, I, m my wife and I watched it once every four days or so because we wanted to sit with it because those are important stories sure. and the acting is so powerful and we wanted to think about what that story was saying yeah. as opposed to just consume, consume, consume. Right, right. You know, it's it, it, it's it started with, for me, you tell me if it's, it started with um, Battlestar Galactica, I think. I mean, certainly they had the, the prestige television, peak TV, whatever the hell you want to call it, you know, you could argue started with um, the Sopranos, although I would say it all started with I Claudius on PBS in the right. late 70s, but that makes me a classicist. Um, but a lot of it was with Battlestar with people who didn't watch it at first because uh, at the time, who would think something, who would think a reboot on Sci Fi Network would be good? Well, we would because we knew Ronald D. Moore was I didn't, involved, but right? I didn't. I mean, that's the thing. So you discovered it on DVD after? Uh, I discovered it into season two. Oh, okay. But because I had friends, see, I, I, 
I had this, I, I apparently never learned. So I also understand <laughs> why people are the not my Star Trek for this. When TNG came out, I was like, this is not my Star Trek. It took me two seasons to go, yeah. oh, this is my, and then became my favorite Star Trek yeah. until Deep Space Nine. And when <laughs> Deep Space Nine came out, I was like, this is not my Star Trek. Why do I want to watch Love Boat in Space? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. then it became like, this is the best show that I've ever seen. Yeah. When Battlestar came out, I went, what am I going to watch that stupid thing for? I didn't like Battlestar originally. Yeah. So this yeah. is going to be oh, great. Remake a dumb show. Right. And my friends were like, no. <laughs> There's this episode 33. Right. <laughs> it's a great episode of television ever. Uh, yeah. And, really and finally, I sat down and watched it and went, oh, my God. And then I, be, I now I've become friends with a whole bunch of the Battlestar people. And they were like, yeah, a lot of people did that. And, yeah. I, th and I think you're right. That may... That felt like a movie every week. Right. And I think part of the reason that was so, that lent itself to binging was was baked into the show of like, uh, uh, the whole thing is breathless and it always ended on a cliffhanger. I mean, that was, in a way, it was their gimmick was mm -hmm. like, you can't stop. It's like eating a bowl of right. popcorn. You can't stop doing it. So, um, yeah, Battlestar's got a lot to answer for. I mean, it's a great television show, but it kind of ruined things a little bit. But, I mean, but that's also like saying Jaws and Star Wars ruined sure, movies. Like, sure, sure, sure. They made amazing movies. Like, yeah. they Battlestar is just one of the... People still freak out over that show yeah. and, and are fanatical about that show. At Comic-Con this year, when I, Trisha and uh, Helfer and, and, and Michael Truco and Grace Park, we were all hanging out, and they were like, we're still back here doing this, talking about this, because yeah. people go crazy. And they they couldn't walk around. People just swarmed them it's, about it's weird, that show. Yeah. And they've tried to catch lightning in a bottle again. They did the spinoff show, mm -hmm. Caprica, which was okay. And then they did a couple of one-off, like, direct-to-video movies that uh, didn't quite connect, but... But they also you know, had a purpose for telling that story. Yeah. We were dealing with the, the Iraq war. We were dealing with humanity. We yeah. were dealing with technology and 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 paranoia. And It was the first post-9-11 show. Absolutely. First post-9-11 anything that meant anything. I mean, the the it was that. It was Enterprise mm -hmm. season three. Mm -hmm. But Battlestar came first. And... Or did it actually? This I is, think I they think were. I think they were almost around right. the same time. Yeah. But uh, and then the other one, of course, is uh, Spielberg's War of the Worlds, which mm -hmm. is a masterpiece. Um, so much so that like people didn't even engage with it when it came out. I mean, it was a, a hit because Spielberg tends to make hits, but it wasn't like it. It didn't become the success that it should have been because I think it was so overwhelming that film. Um, but how did we get on that topic? Um, talking about binging we're talking about binging okay damage report <laughs> that's how i feel about that um yeah so you're 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 not telling people not to binge on all access oh yeah so the other thing we're talking about all access and having to shell out it's six quarters an episode it's a dollar right. and a half that's after by the way if you go to cvs.com slash star trek you get a free week so after your free week kicks in an episode of 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 your show is Six pieces of eight, a dollar fifty. It's really not a lot of dough, um, considering that to see Star Trek Beyond in the theater is fifteen dollars. Well, that's the know. other thing too. Is like you go see Dunkirk, and it's yeah. it's on on IMAX, and it's what twenty five dollars or if something. If you're doing like? it in New York City on IMAX, you're as you should if you can. If you can, it's 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 twenty five bucks. Right, yeah. twenty five bucks for what two hour movie. I don't want to downplay Dunkirk. It's pretty great. I understand but, that. But what I'm saying is from a cost analysis from a, benefit. From a strictly I, I, I don't. I, again, I, it's just 
not something that I, I think about as having an issue because I also pay for HBO. So yeah. I go, well, that show, those shows are special and they're delivering something different that you don't see on network television. Yeah. So... I yeah. don't. I don't. I don't look at it as a problem. I mean, there are some people that just have the mental blocks. I have never paid for Star Trek before, and then they also get annoyed if I lived in Europe. I could watch it on Netflix. Well, you don't live in. But Europe. But you don't live in yeah. Europe, and and you're right. You have never paid for Star Trek before because there's never been Star Trek like this before. Hey, that's a good. That's a good line. I've never used that, Brian. Write that down. Yeah, let, let's cut that out. Let's cut that out. <laughs> that's good. Um, now the 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 other thing that but that is interesting though is all access, uh, which you know I'm not a shill for all access, but. Uh, at least not this week. Um, <laughs> they uh, they've also got allegedly Twilight Zone coming mm-hmm. back. Yeah, Jordan Peele. So I mean, like it's it's not going away. A la carte streaming is probably going to be the thing. I mean, Star Trek was the canary in the coal coal mine. There's and always going to be network TV. Yeah, and there will be certain types of shows. Like, listen, if you like NCIS, which a lot of people do, that. CBS does that really, really well on network TV. Yeah. If you like something that is, ser- like in our case, serialized, a little grittier, has an amazing visual design and the type of actors that we... We have Michelle Yeoh. We've had Michelle Yeoh, who's one of the biggest movie stars in the world. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we we have a quality of acting and the quality of Jason Isaacks, you know, phenom- every, he's, everyone across the board. Everyone is in the show. show has been dynamite. Um, and also hats off to finding the newcomer of the newcomer in, in Tilly in uh, Mary she, Weissman. She's really great. You know, you know, it's funny. Uh, I, I had really has done, has a no other. No, this, credits, this is know? her, this is her big break. Yeah. Um, Mary Weissman is a spectacular performer. When we started writing, we, Tilly was a weird character because we just kind of, I think Tilly actually came out of that mind of Aaron Harbert's and said, we need a character like a, a Tilly. And I'm not sure a lot of us understood originally what the intent was. And so, and it was weird because we were writing, I'd never been on a show where the pilot hadn't been written when I came on board. Mm. So you normally, the pilot is shot and you watch the pilot and you, ha- your, you understand. That's your baseline. Yeah. Right. So we were writing Lorca and we were like, I wonder who Lorca is going to be. <laughs> is he going to be white? Is he going to be black? Is he going to, is it a man? Is it a woman? We, right. And what type of person is this? And then once you cast Jason Isaacs, then you can kind of start writing to that we didn't know who Mary Weissman was, so we Tilly was a character that we were just writing in the dark, and then you start to see her come back in dailies. You went, "Oh, I love Tilly," right, and then we right, just right. started writing towards Tilly, yeah, because Mary does something extraordinary, and in one case, she's in one sense she is us. She's the Star Trek fan who is living in Star she's Trek, the Reg Barclay to a degree, to but, a degree. But I, I mean, think. Um, uh, Yes, she is a little of that. I think they come from a, there's a Venn diagram where there's some bleed over. <laughs> right. But I do think that <laughs> yeah. that she's way cooler and funnier. And also, and, but like she can be very um, nervous and shy, and then occasionally like just like downshifts into like being very self uh, self aware and self confident. That's why I believe she will be a captain someday. Well, I think based on but, episode eight's. Uh, Stamets zipping through UK. Don't look me in the eye because I know you know the answer. But, uh, but there was the implication that Stamets saw her in a, in a different timeline. But there's also the moment in episode three yeah. where they go on to the Glen 
And Tilly's the one who spots the Klingon. Yeah. Tilly's the one who pulls her phaser and says, step out of the shadows. Right, yeah. And so she's a member of Starfleet for a reason. Yeah. We didn't want to have someone just goofy and be the clown because people would hate that character. Right, right. We wanted someone who could bring comedy and levity, but also heart. Like, she's the best talk to for Burnham. Yeah. And as much as Burnham is a mentor for her, she is a mentor on how to be human for Burnham. Absolutely, yeah. And also, she clearly knows how to party because in episode seven, <laughs> yeah. she was a master at beer pong. Absolutely, and, and her hair looked great. And also. worked that party like a pro. Let me ask you a question now that uh, if the answer was no, it was nothing else to talk about. But have you had a chance, Star Trek fan and Star Trek Discovery co-executive producer Ted Sullivan, have you had a chance to watch the Orville at all? No. Okay. Well, that ends that. Eventually, you're going to watch the Orville. I, I think so. Yeah. So hopefully, you can watch it with a uh, my hope with is, a with a with tabula rasa when you eventually get to it. Well, sure. I mean, the, the real reason I haven't watched it is not out of some. No, you're a busy man. I also don't want to be influenced by anything that they're doing. Oh, you won't. I'll tell you why. Because their show is entirely retrograde. Sure. Their show is riffing on. Their show wants so much to just be TNG. Occasionally they step out of it and they want to be TOS, but mostly they just want to be TNG and they just do it. They recreate it and then it's like a clock. Every X amount of minutes they got to throw in a Seth MacFarlane joke. Right. And which are funny. I mean, I'm not the biggest Seth MacFarlane fan, but you know. So it's like. You're watching a TNG episode, a uh, 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 funny joke about Cindy Lauper. Didn't see that one coming. Okay, but that that made me laugh. Right. But a uh, uh, funny joke about Coca-Cola. All right. So, but it is cool. I mean, I'm, I'm one or two episodes behind because I'm not clearly, it's not, I'm not that impassioned about it. But every time I watch, I'm like, I love the Orville. This is great. So. I always root for scripted television to succeed. Right. <laughs> so I want the show to succeed yeah yeah because i like when i look out on the landscape of network television and see and it's not another singing competition show or not someone's building a house and giving it away i i really want scripted television to work i want science fiction to have its real day and to be thoughtful science fiction not just whiz bang boom yeah and that's great so if that's if I, I want them to succeed. Yeah. I really do because I also believe they're doing something a hundred percent different than what we're doing. Oh, absolutely. I don't think there anybody who is pitching the two against one another has clearly hasn't watched both because they're very different. And I mean, even the look and just the whole attitude. I mean, it's very, very, very. Different, I mean, obviously, but, I've seen the trailers and commercials yeah. and all that type of thing. And I will say, if you want not to have a paywall. <laughs> Right. That's what you get, and, and that's great, and that and that is enjoyable, I'm sure. And it, they got renewed for a second season, yeah. and that's good. And we're just doing something. I think when you look at the two side by side, one's not necessarily better than the other; they're just different. Very, and, very and our different, goal yeah. is to do something much more in line with the Game of Thrones of a of doing a movie every week. Right, right. I mean, and from a phys- from a uh, production values point, and they're they're night and day. Right. I mean, the Orville does it looks like. A TNG fan film. I mean, with with a K, they put some money into the pilot in the battle scene, but after that, it's just been like you know they're on cheap sets. And but I'm happy. I'm yeah. happy that they. But got then a they, second get, season. they get they get Liam Neeson to show up. 
Oh, funny. <laughs> he shows up at the end like it was classic. It, that This was like kind of a riff on TOS. They uncover like an old recording of like an elder. And, you know, it's like they push it. They plug in the old computer lives of him and goes, hello, I am Sir Blah Blah. blah. And it's, it's Liam Neeson. It's oh, like, that's, oh, that's funny. Okay. So, you know, hey, but, you know, the guy. So it was more than once that he kind of said nasty I, things. It, it, it was just, listen. Once is enough. <laughs> well, but I mean, it was one of those things like, wow, you're. We didn't have to talk about the Orville, you know, and yeah. the Orville was just talking about us a lot. And it felt like that we were getting a lot of, um, we, we were helping them promote their show. Oh, I see. I see. Um, I see. But, and, yeah. and apparently they didn't need that because they're a hit and yeah. they got a re- renewal. And, the, and, and like I said, that's really great. And I am super happy yeah. to see science fiction and scripted television yeah. succeed. Yeah, a little bit of an immature move on their part. But what are you going to do? All right, well, you know what? You have to get out of here fairly soon. It is now 1130 in the anti-meridian. Um, what I want to say to you is we're going to, we're in the middle of a hiatus. The show comes back in January. We mm-hmm. don't know exactly which week. Um, I may be on the Star Trek cruise when the show comes back. Oh. You know, I do work the Star Trek cruise. I know. One of these days I got to do that. You really do. Yeah. I mean, it's like, because you went to the Vegas convention. Imagine that on on the high seas. With just bars all around me. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah there's that's... a little bit of that. And, you know, there is the special, I mean, I don't know if you're planning to come back to the East Coast, but at the Jersey City Liberty Science Center, which is a short short ride away from Manhattan. The Star Trek Starfleet experience is up right now. Yes, right. Yeah, I heard about that. Which is a lot of fun, and we were there a couple of days ago. We hosted some events and whatnot. So there's a lot of Star Trek happening right now. It's exciting. You'll be in Vegas for sure, though, in next summer, right? I I can't imagine why I wouldn't be. Those uh, four days were crazy fun. Um, It was a very strange experience because uh, when I came out on stage with you it felt like 6,000 people <laughs> were just <laughs> arms crossed saying what do you got and it took I think really about 40 minutes for people to kind of loosen up and a say little bit. okay a little bit and then Erica and Bowie and Mary Chifo and I we stayed around for three more days and yeah. we just would walk the floor and we hung out at Quark's bar and people would kind of come by and they'd say well kind of sniff around us a little bit. <laughs> and then we said, well, we can't talk about Discovery, but you want to talk about Deep Space Nine? They're right, like, wait, right. you know Deep Space Nine? We're like, yeah, like, uh, or which TNG episodes you want? And, yeah. And then, then people started to kind of relax and think, oh, maybe you guys aren't jerks. Yeah, well, it, it's there, yes. And I think that next year, uh, you will be treated an awful lot differently. There will be a much more celebratory atmosphere, which is not to say everybody's going to love no. the show, but the ones who don't will at least respect where you're coming from, you know? Um, oh, and- Frakes told me, he's like, this is going to be a rough one. <laughs> <laughs> he said, trust me. He said, after that, it'll be better. But he, he did give me the heads up. You mean up. on the fir- the one that you did? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Cool, cool, cool. Right, right, right. Sure. Nobody knows it. But I will say that um, after, uh, when we did the Fan Expo in Canada, that was a very different experience. Well, the Canadians are much more polite, uh, but I think that people had seen more and more of the show. They 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 felt sneak was presence. They had seen our presence online because we all try to be. Anthony Rapp is very very focused on dealing with the fans. Oh yeah, um, I try to be. Uh, Bowie is Erica to a degree. We we try to interact with them. Uh, Aaron Harberts is now like really online and trying to answer questions. Yeah, and yeah. to let people know. One, we hear you, but two, 
we want you to be part of this because Star Trek is unlike any other franchise in that it was kept alive by the fans. Sure. Star yeah. Wars was kept alive by one man. Right, right. George Lucas kept it alive, but we as fans kept Star Trek alive. And I think the hardcore fans are beginning to recognize it, and they, they definitely are recognizing it, and by next year they really have. And I think part of this is a little bit of a holdover, or something that you had no control over, which is J.J. Um, uh, Abrams who's a very talented guy, but uh, left the f- was had very mixed feelings about his interaction with Star Trek fans. And when he came on at first, for the first movie, you know, we're talking now 2008, because the movie came out in 2009, part of his gimmick was, I don't watch Star Trek. That was, that was in his talking points until eventually somebody told him to stop. Right. I mean, uh, but that was his thing. And that, rub people the wrong way and I think that there probably were some people who felt well the last guy was all about coming in guns blazing not knowing Star Trek how are we going to trust this new show and I think you've earned the trust now after after seeing what we've seen so far in the first eight episodes and kind of your just your presence at the convention your presence on this show for God's sake the other thing that JJ his other thing is secrecy and <laughs> yeah. and I think that kind of bled over yeah. into us. I mean, the reason why I created Jason Gorn yeah. was to d- create something online where I could say, hey, we're going to have fun and interact with you guys until we're allowed to say something. Until we're allowed to I mean, actually I, talk I about this him everywhere. Oh, I my go. God. He's taking off his pants right now. Oh, my God. Oh, there he is. Yes, Jason the Gorn. The Internet's famous yes. Jason Gorn. You know what's funny is, and, and I know you do got to run, but... Um, when we were in Las Vegas in the little uh, green room, uh, Kirsten Byers' young daughter, who's adorable. Oh, she's great. Um, was really into holding Jason. Yes. Gorn. And then you had to leave for like, you had to, go, you had to like split for a couple hours mm-hmm. and you had to leave the convention center. And um, she is like, I'll protect Jason. She did. I mean, she's pretty much like eight or nine or something. She's And young Kirsten and- kept sending me pictures of right. her. she was acting out scenes with Jason oh, awesome. and the, or taking a nap with Jason or feeding Jason. Yeah. She just thought Jason was the cool. And Jason is a cool. When I was walking around at uh, Comic-Con, I would just be walking around and people would say, I recognize you from Twitter. And I'm like, yeah. oh yeah. I said, do you have Jason? <laughs> and I would take him out and say, and they all wanted to take pictures with Jason. And there last night at the screening, everyone wanted to take pictures with Jason. Yeah. It's fun, and it's also a way to say, I'm a fan, too. Yeah, yeah. And I like to have fun with it. Well, you know, uh, Will, here's the question, and maybe the fans can decide. Should Jason Gorn be the mascot for season two, or should there be a, should he be retired, and should a new one come in in season two? Well, if you go on my Instagram, Bowie Kim uh, and I, we went camping uh, a week ago, and she made sad Tribble. <laughs> uh, and uh, Sad Tribble uh, is also becoming a character on online. Okay. So you should go All look right. for him, too. Uh, she made a really, really funny... Is your Instagram the same as your Twitter? Yes. It's all yes. part I, of And you know, what's interesting, too, is it is Thangarian, but it is misspelled, and it's misspelled on purpose. Uh, it's, oh. it, in, in DC Comics, it's K-A-R-T-A-R-H-O-L. Oh, Kartar Hall. Yes. Okay. And um, you misspelled it on purpose. Well, when I first got my first business cards, yeah, I created that address, and I realized I had misspelled it. Oh no! And I had, and I didn't have a lot of money, and I had all, I bought five hundred cards. <laughs> this is back when you had business cards. Sure, sure. And now I keep it. I I've never changed it because now I keep it to 
um, remind myself, pay attention to the details. So it's, well, it's a uh, lesson. It, this is like it's like a Talmudic yes, lesson. It is. is. So nice. for me, yeah. I go like every time I log on to Instagram or, or or Twitter, it's like pay attention to the details because if you don't, it's something gonna linger. gets through. Yeah, it's going to linger. Is DC Comics another brass ring for you? Do you want to at some point work on a DC property? Well, either? I did Supergirl. That's right. Yeah. I knew that. So uh, um, there you go. I I uh, I, I liked. Uh, listen. The cast of that show is unbelievable, and I met a lot of really great writers. It's, I, I feel that doing Star Trek right now is the dream job I've always wanted. Star Trek is so smart and intelligent, and it's about things that I care about. It's yeah. about dealing with racism, dealing with culture issues, um, and I think we're able, we have the freedom now to delve into th- subject matter with a um, thoughtfulness that really hasn't necessarily been able to be done in with all of the tools that we have at our at our disposal right now. Yeah. So I, it, this is the most exciting time I think for Star Trek. Yeah. In ages. And I think potentially um, not going anywhere. Uh, you know, it could and and because of the streaming uh, platform, can go to unique places. I totally. mean, there was a time. When there were three star, there was DS9 and Voyager at the same time, as well as TNG feature films. You know, there's no reason to think that that sort of multi-level of Star Trek is not a possibility if this continues. And we're so. in a completely uh, evolving and changing uh, media platform. Yeah. So it's it's like the early days of TV where people are experimenting. What can we do with this? What what kind of stories can we tell? What kind of uh, spin-offs or whatever that that is all what's happening right now so that's why i'm so excited by it yeah well it's exciting time so in january while uh, i'm on the star trek cruise the new show will uh, it's gonna be all it's gonna be a weird scene because i don't know that they're gonna be able to get the show on the ship on the ship so like the 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 1,300 people or whoever are on that ship. These diehard the, fans. The people who most want to watch right. what will be episode 10 right. will be unable to do so because we'll be sunning ourselves. But be that as it may. I will tell you, episode 10 won't say what happens in it, Yeah, but your heads are going to explode. Which is the one, when we were in Vegas, you were like one, it was like, I think you were talking to um, Ken Mitchell and you're like, you know, watch uh, watch the dailies. Like that was some Wrath of Khan level stuff, man. That was the best. Oh, this next episode. That was nine. Yeah, that was the one. Yeah, Eric and Bowie's episode. Okay, it's, there's there are moments in that where I, my jaw is just hanging open. Very and cool. His performance is crazy good in that episode. Awesome. So by the time this airs, we'll have seen it. But right now, I haven't. I want to. I want to congratulate myself. Because I've had you on this uh, podcast now for over an hour, and not once have I bothered you about where is Vok and is Vok Tyler. <laughs> I haven't done any of that. I haven't asked you if we're going to see uh, Giorgio again in a flashback. I have not pestered you for any spoilers because I'm kind of cool now. I I watch the show with the fans, and that's that's the way it is. Awesome. Now. So so it's pretty great. Thank you again. I want to say uh, red alert. We have had. Ted Sullivan, uh, tel- Ted Sullivan, that's your next handle. Sure, sure. Ted Sullivan has been here, and now we are going to warp out of here. You've got to fly back to... Ahead, warp factor one. You've got to get back to Los Angeles, and I've got to get to the west side. So thanks again. We'll see you next week. And until then, live long and prosper. 
This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.